A person can buy or sell almost anything these days, so why not lawsuits? The business of litigation finance has taken off over the past decade. The idea is to provide the funding needed for complex lawsuits in exchange for a share of the recovery. The rapid growth has raised questions about the impact on the litigation system. In the world of litigation finance, no player is bigger than Burford Capital, a publicly traded company that says it has more than $2 billion either invested in litigation or available to be invested. Our guest today is the managing director of Burford Capital. He's Travis Lechner, uh, and he is with us uh, on on the phone today. Uh, Travis, thanks so much for joining us. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, Burford Capital, and, and particularly, what what kind of cases do you fund, and and how do you how, how do you select what cases you're involved in? Sure. Well, thanks, Greg. It's nice to be with you. Um, so at Burford, we are uh, a, a global finance firm focused on law. And that typically, but not always, means uh, we're focused on litigation finance transactions. And usually the types of litigation that we become involved in are complex commercial cases. So you can think about uh, breach of contract, business tort, antitrust, or intellectual property matters as some of the leading uh, types of cases where our outside capital might be helpful. And usually for us to make an investment, uh, our, our investment minimum size uh, is, is a, a million or two million dollars is about the smallest investment we would make. And so that means that uh, the, the smallest size of the case in terms of the damages in dispute in the case would probably be somewhere around $20 million. So these are uh, high-dollar, significant commercial disputes that are being litigated by uh, a lot of brands name law firms that, uh, that you and I and, and your listeners know very well. And when you get involved in a case, is your agreement with the law firm who's representing the, the, the party? Is it with the, the party themselves? Is it with both of them? And, and what are they giving up uh, to you in exchange for, for uh, your involvement in your, in your financing? Well, the answer is that it depends on why we're getting involved and why we're being brought into the case. So in the most straightforward example of litigation finance, uh, a, a user of litigation finance, a client, a litigant, would approach us to obtain our capital to pay some or all of the cost associated with the lawsuit. And so in that type of situation, which is kind of the garden variety litigation finance investment, our agreement ultimately would be with the client, the litigant itself. But the, the, the breadth of services we provide extends also to situations where we might be providing a financial solution to a law firm that does a lot of work on a contingent fee and wants to reduce the risk that all of those contingent fees pose in the event that uh, many or none of the contingent fee cases are ultimately successful. And so in that circumstance, we might have a, 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 an investment with a law firm based on a single piece of litigation or based on a portfolio of the, of the firm's cases. Uh, and, and in those types of situations, our agreements are with the firm. So we have a lot of different investment and transaction structures, and it's the structure that makes the difference of uh, who it is that's signing the contract alongside us. One of the questions that, that sort of surrounds litigation finance has been the issue of transparency. Is it, When you all are involved in, in a, a, a case, is that something that is, that, that is publicly known as part of the, the litigation? It generally is not disclosed and is not required to be disclosed. And the, the analogy or one of the analogies is actually to a contingent fee. Uh, it, it, it's very rare that the details of or the terms of a contingent fee agreement that a client would enter into with a law firm 
would be disclosed to the court or to the other side in the litigation. That is a matter between the client and its counsel. And so too here, if a client has an agreement with a third party that allows it to obtain capital secured by an asset, unless that is actually relevant to the claims and defenses in the litigation, uh, which is almost always not the case, then we would not typically be disclosed as part of the case itself. Does it, does it, is it fair to say that it alters the incentives in, in, in litigation when a third party, when a, a litigation finance company gets involved? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, if I'm, if you file a lawsuit against me, uh, your interest is, is uh, in getting, uh, is in winning the lawsuit, getting, getting a certain amount of uh, justice for yourself, but then you get somebody else who's involved and has a financial stake in it. Doesn't that sort of change how everybody looks at things? Well, if we're doing our job, Greg, it shouldn't change the incentives. And, and what we try to do when we're structuring investments that we make is to make very sure that that's not the case. So I'll sort of give you a, a back-of-envelope example. Our rule of thumb is that uh, our investment return uh, should not be taking up more than half of the client's share of the litigation proceeds. And that is so that if the client is at the settlement table or in a mediation, uh, we want the client incentivized to take a settlement as opposed to using our capital to, to take more risk and to swing for the fences when the client otherwise would have settled the case. A settlement is good for us, right, because that's the, way, that's the only way, unless there's a win ultimately in the litigation, that we receive a, a, a positive return on our investment. So there's much talk about the incentives uh, related to litigation and in connection with litigation finance, but in fact, we want the incentives to stay the same because, importantly, we don't have any control rights related to the litigation. So we don't control the settlement decision. We can't force a client to settle. So when the client's at the settlement table, we want them incentivized in the same way that they were before so that they make rational economic choices that can benefit everyone. Does litigation finance encourage litigation? That's one criticism that, that, that I've seen lodged by folks like the, the Chamber of Commerce. Right. Well, there, too, if, if we're doing a, a good job and if we're going to be in this business for very long, uh, it, it shouldn't encourage litigation. Frankly, we're discouraging litigation because we invest in a very small, single-digit percentage of the number of opportunities that we see. And much more often, when, when, as is almost always the case, we are passing on an investment opportunity, we are explaining to the other side why we are passing on that opportunity and helping them understand more about the likelihood of success or, or the low likelihood of success in their particular case. So generally speaking, we only want to be involved in meritorious cases. That, that too is how we are ultimately successful in this business. And so where a case has merit, uh, if it weren't funded by us, it would be picked up by a contingent fee law firm. There would be some capital solution already out there that would allow that to, to come into the court system. So I've, I have yet to see a real example of litigation finance uh, encouraging litigation. But uh, as you mentioned, that has not stopped uh, the chamber. Uh, no slave is it to facts. Uh, you know, that, is, that has not stopped it from using that as a, as a, talking, uh, as a talking point about what we do. Okay, I want to thank our guest. It's Travis Lentner. He's the managing director at Burford Capital, uh, which is the largest uh, company involved in litigation finance with uh, some two billion, more than $2 billion either invested or available for investment in, uh, in, in lawsuits. Uh, that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks to our technical director, Chris Tricomi, and our producer, Mark Siniscalci. Coming up next on Bloomberg, Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Markets with Corey Johnson. Corey's here to tell us what they're going to be talking about. How familiar are you with the dancing hot dog phenomenon? Uh, not very. That, not very. Well, there are dancing hot dogs on Snapchat and all kinds of other fantastic filters that make your disappearing mattresses look great. But nothing can make this stock look great. It's down 12% today. Remember when it's trading at $29 a share after the IPO? It's down to 12 right now. We're going to d- dig into that with Jatender Wall. That all right. Making, hot dogs. Make those hot dogs come alive. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> 